Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay. Do I, should I, do I need to record or anything? Uh, no, no. I just record here and it sends, a, it, it sends your file to me. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. 
You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs Podcast with me, Giles Bitter, and I'm excited to say that I've got Brendan Kelly here from the Lawrence Arms to talk about their new record, Skeleton Coast, to talk about some of the jobs that he's worked and how he kind of domesticated himself halfway through their career. And, you know, when they were when they started, he, you know, you'll hear in a second, but they, they were kind of basically full-time when they started because they were touring so much. It was great to hear about that and then how he transitioned from that into working and being a dad, then eventually getting into advertising, working at The Onion, and then doing his Nihilist Arby's thing, which is still genius. East London's signature brew have been brewing music-inspired beers and supporting live music since 2011. You may know them from their collaboration beers, brewed with the likes of Mastodon, Idols, which is the episode before this with Mark Bowen, fascinating guy, Slaves, Mogwai, Enter Shikari, and loads more. And as a listener to 101 Part-Time Jobs, as a coveted listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off all the beers from their website at signaturebrew.co.uk using the code 101podcast at checkout. That's 101podcast, all capital letters at checkout for 10% off all the beers of signaturebrew.co.uk. Here's Brendan Kelly from the Lawrence Arms. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. How are you doing? You've done a lot of interviews then for Skeleton Coast. Uh, you know what? Actually, it's not been too crazy, um, but uh, I just did do one just now. <laughs> so, um, so, so I, sorry I'm late. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we've done a few, but it hasn't been too overwhelming. And has that, has that changed? I mean, in terms of where we find out about new music from, that's changed so much over the last 15 years. I mean, what's it been like on the other side? It sure has. I mean, it used to be we put out a record and... Um, you know, the interviews would just be kind of nonstop. But I mean, I think music journalism in general is to take kind of a hit, you know, and um, definitely the way people consume things on the Internet, like long reading, long form things, stuff of that nature uh, is maybe not as popular as it used to be. And um, mm. as a result, um, yeah, or maybe or maybe people just care less about us now. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It could be it could be that, too. I don't think that's the case because we have bigger shows than ever but uh, right but, and every every time you come to london it's it's an event you know yeah well thank you i appreciate that um and i'm glad i, I love love me some london man we, we love coming there and uh so yeah i think it's probably more just like a state of the state of like how the public consumes music and and what they want to hear about it because you know when spotify when you could just go and listen to the record for yourself uh there's not as much reason to like read read up on something and be like, do I want this? You know, I remember getting Spotify for the first time and being like, holy shit, this is the best thing ever. And then a few years later, kind of actually thinking about it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> using my brain and being like, oh, this is actually potentially incredibly damaging. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it goes both ways because like, uh, you know, I think a band of like our size, uh, yes, damaging uh, <laughs> for like small bands. Um, it's great because it gives people an opportunity to listen to something that they might not otherwise listen to. And people that are very, very popular make a dick ton of money off of Spotify, mm. you know, but, um, if you're banned in the middle, it's rough, uh, for sure. But, uh, what are you going to do, man? Like, I, I might as well bitch about the sun coming up in the morning, you know? Right. I mean, that make me, that makes me think how, how good are you crunching the numbers in the Lawrence Arms? We, we just kind of make music, man. And, you know, and. Back in the day, we used to go on tour and there would be money at the end and that would be good. <laughs> but like we're, you know, it's not like, it's not like we have some sort of like balance sheet that we need to maintain or anything like that. We, we still operate very much like a punk band that, um, 
you know, fucking those records when we want to piles in the van when we can play as many shows as we feel we're able to and, and see, see where it all nets out at the end. Like we're not a very business savvy, I guess would be a good way to put it. When I started this podcast, obviously it's about, you know, it's namesake and it's about the crappy part-time jobs that anyone would work between tours. And I like, I'm speaking mostly from like, I guess, rock bands and punk rock bands specifically, but at some point that becomes synonymous with like your entire life. It's only, it's only the first couple of years that you like, it's a novelty of getting that kind of crap gardener's job. And then I feel like maybe on your second or third year of being in a touring band, it's, it, 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 you have to find some kind of stability in it. What, what's your kind of experience in that? Well, so for a long time, when the Lawrence Arms started, this was, it was my only job, right? Um, and I know that sounds kind of weird, but that was back when like albums were selling and stuff like that. And I had been in a band before this called Slapstick that yeah. had done rather well. And then after that, a band called The Broadways, which didn't do as well, but, uh, they were still bands that put out records when people bought records. And so when the Lawrence Arms started, we had sort of like a, um, a little bit of a leg up in terms of being a new band and having people interested in coming to see us. And a lot of people didn't particularly like what we did, but enough people would come to the shows and enough people would buy the records that we were able to maintain, um, a pretty, uh, shitty lifestyle with, with, (laughs) with a little bit of ease, you know what I mean? And, um, so we didn't have that, like when we were like really like hustling in the early days, we didn't come home to jobs because we didn't come home at all. Like we'd play like 350 shows a year, you know? And, uh, and so we would just be out there just doing it, doing it, doing it. And, um, and it was only when, my son was about to be born. Um, he was born in 2008. Um, that we came home from a tour and it was like, yeah, all right, I can't be gone all the time. I think we were burned out as well. And I, I don't think we knew what to do. And that's when I started getting fucking shitty jobs. And so the first job I got was um, the Metro is a big club in Chicago. It's like where we play when we play here. Um, and uh, I got a job as a loader, like a stagehand and a loader and then a stage manager um, at Metro, which was great because there'd be people that'd be like, Hey, my band used to open for your band. And now here you are carrying my shit up the stairs. It's literally something someone said. (laughs) And I was like, all right. You know? And then, um, and then I don't remember why I fucking left that job. Fuck. I really don't because I, I liked it. Um, but eventually I, was walked into a bar. I think we went on another tour and then they were just, they were just like, yeah, you know, it's a slow season. We don't need you back or whatever. And, uh, and I went to, uh, I went to this bar. My friend Katie was working and she was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. I like no longer have my job. And, uh, you know, I'm just fucking, I got no tours on the horizon. And she was like, we, you bartend, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. Bartend- always bartending. Yeah, I'm big, big bartender. She's like, yeah, we're hiring a bartender right now. And so I talked to the guy right there and I was like, yeah, I bartend. I bartended at this place, which I'd never bartended in my life before. And, um, and 
the guy was like, oh, yeah? <laughs> I think he could tell I was bullshitting him because he goes, like, during the interview, which, like, I walked in there for a beer. I did the interview with a beer in my hand. Uh, I wasn't expecting to have a job interview at that point. And the guy goes, well, you kind of got me over a barrel because I really need a bartender. So uh, come back tomorrow and start. And I was like, all right, great. And so uh, then I became a bartender. And um, I did that there for a bunch of years. And this is 2008, 2009, you say? Yeah. So O Calcutta had come out and O Calcutta is easily one of the best fat rec records of, of that period of time, in my opinion. Well, thanks, man. Did that ever weigh, was that like a bit of a cross to bear, I suppose? Is that a weird question? You know, did you kind of, was that kind of riding on your shoulders? The fact that, you know, you were in a band that people love. Yeah, man, it was, uh, it was weird. And it was like a little bit, it was a little bit embarrassing, I guess. Um, not that there, you know, not that there's fucking anything wrong with having a job. Um, but like, you know, I had for so long, um, lived on being a touring musician. And so a lot of my peers were also people that live off being touring musicians and they would come to town and they would like come to the North side, which is the name of the bar I worked at. And I'd just be like, Hey dude, <laughs> you know, yeah. how's, how's the road? And it wasn't like, a it wasn't, again, it wasn't that I was embarrassed that I had a job and it wasn't that I was like jealous of people that, you know, were able to continue to do this. Cause I mean, like, again, by the same token, I just had a new, a new kid, but it was, it all factored into the same thing, which was like, I've become like domesticated, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and you know, like I, I deal, I spend my days dealing with babies and then I go to my, my work, you know, which was something that was very foreign to me. And, um, so it's like when all of a sudden, like, Brian Fallon comes in and he's like, you know, I told you I'd show up even if you couldn't be at the show. And I'm like, oh, hey, man, fuck. <laughs> you know, I, not only did I miss your show, but here I am bartending, you know, making chocolate martinis for these ladies or whatever. Because there's that whole thing. You know, I've worked at a couple of like festivals and stuff. And, you know, if you're playing it, you're the talent with a capital T. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Did you ever like buy into that? No, nah, man, it's... um. The guy that serves you beer is way more important than the guy on the stage, hundred percent of the time. Um, like if you're, you and if you don't believe me, consider this: take one of them out of the equation. Which place are you still going to go? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, like are you going to go see a band with no bar, or are you going to go to a bar where there's no band? Uh, I think I think it speaks for itself. Like maybe mm. on a rare occasion you'll go to see a show where there's no fucking bar, but fuck you go to bars where like if i go to a bar and there is a band i'm like Ugh, maybe we should go to another bar like, I, don't, I don't necessarily need to see this fucking band and i don't have to know and love the bartender to sit down at a bar and have a good time i have to really fucking know the band to fucking go there and have a good time especially if there's no beer so yeah. um i don't believe in that shit at all i mean i understand you know artists are kind of elevated to a put on some sort of pedestal because people really connect to the art but you know, something I talk about a lot is that without those people connected to it, it doesn't mean jack shit. You could, you know, take fucking Radiohead and put that music out in 1955. Nobody gives a fuck about Radiohead. Radiohead's not good. Radiohead's not important at all. Fucking that dude with the weird eyes. He's fucking he's he's working at a bar. 
You know what I mean? And and he's making a lot more money and more people respect him at that point. You know, yeah. and he could put out the exact same songs. It's, 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 you know, it's just like the art's not really important at all. Um, it's it's the people that connect with it that make it important. So, right. Um, and, you know, there's a whole thing with like um, a trend in like big festivals now is that certain bands will put up pictures of themselves backstage and they'll be like, these guys are not going to wear the fucking wristband or they're not going to, you know, carry the laminate, get to know their faces. Do not stop them, you know? And, and it's like, fuck you. Like that you're, you're <laughs> there's like all these fucking security guys here. And there mean like this, there'll be a picture of the singer of, I don't know, Muse and, and they'll be around backstage saying, you know, none of, none of the people working security question this guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, and it's like, oh, you couldn't fucking carry a laminate. So you're going to make these 35 backstage security guards who are put here for your fucking safety and comfort. Uh, you're going to make their fucking job like 10 times more miserable um, just because like you can't carry a fucking laminate in your pocket. Like a dick, man. You know, it's like it, the, the sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The entitlement that mm. people seem to tend to feel just because like they're lucky enough that some people like their songs is kind of fucking ridiculous to me. Nobody that I really fucking particularly know or like very much, but I've definitely seen that exact thing with like the, fucking get to know these dudes faces and mm. festivals where I'm like, who the fuck is this band? I don't even know this fucking band, you know, or right. like, or people like, I remember this when I was working at Metro, there was this fucking band that played, um, that I'm not going to say who they are, but I really liked them very much. Um, and the dude started fucking losing his mind because they wouldn't give him a bottle of Jack Daniels from behind the bar. And they're like, you have hospitality backstage. Like, you can get a bottle of Jack Daniels. We just can't give you one from behind the bar. And he started fucking throwing a like, you know who I am kind of fit. And, and it was like, motherfucker, you're not even the headlining band tonight. You know, <laughs> like, what, what are you, what are you doing? You know? So, I mean, I've definitely seen it and uh, it's kind of disheartening for sure. But um, most people aren't like that, you know, that, and that's, that's the good thing. Do you think people have, I remember, so we, we met briefly before Ollie put you on down here in Deptford and we, we met at the bird's nest that out that pub with a smoking area outside. Oh yeah. And I was asking you questions about Oh Calcutta and stuff. And you said when you were touring with taking back Sunday, where you were, you were headlining that tour and they were just coming out with their first album that there was, you know, loads of people in the, in the parking lot. They were for taking back Sunday and, and, and not you. I'm not saying that to be a dick. I'm saying that, uh, because I guess there's this probably this misconception when a band starts touring a lot and starts releasing records that it's kind of plain sailing from there. And it feels like everything I've read about you and heard from you, that Lawrence Arms, it's always been, you know, up and down. Well, it, I think less than it's been like up and down for us, it's been a slow rise. And I think it's a, been a slower rise than it's really hard to look back now. You know, like now, like we're very, popular band and like we pack big rooms and stuff like that mm. but that's new <laughs> you know like that wasn't the case for a really long time and um you know the um you know at that point that tour was still a good tour for us 
but it wasn't like being on a rocket to the moon, like taking back Sunday it was on, you know, like, and, um, and so it's just like, you know, when you're driving fucking 45 miles an hour on the highway, somebody's going to blow, blow past you at 70 miles an hour at some point, you know, like, and, uh, and that's sort of, that's sort of how it was for us a lot. I mean, there's a lot of bands that we've toured with that have opened for us that have gone on to be very, very huge. And, um, you know, but we're just like slow and steady and, uh, and which is fine. I, I don't want to be in any of those bands. Like, um, I want to be in the Lawrence arms, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's, it's not so much like, I mean, we got ups and downs in terms of like, Jesus fucking Christ. Is this, is this worth it? You know, like, uh, but then we always come back to like, yeah, what else are we going to do? And like, I like this. Do you like this? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you just kind of keep trucking, but, but yeah, um, that, that definitely did happen with taking back. <laughs> you put it really well on, um, on that, on the Alkaline Trio podcast, as you were in, in, you said, I paraphrase, but you say, you know, like some bands have that lightning in a bottle and then, and then it's like uphill from there where, whereas you've kind of got better with every record. Well, I appreciate that. And it's like, yeah, man, I, I think that the, I think that the fucking, the worst thing that could happen to you is to put out a perfect album first. Um, because then like you, you're going to be chasing that dragon for the rest of your career. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. and it, the, the one thing that I feel like you should never do is go back and listen to your own old music for inspiration on how to write new music, which I feel like you just kind of have to do that if that's the kind of band you are, right? Um, if you are have the fortune or misfortune, whatever you want to say, of having made that perfect record first, and that's like eating your own turds for nutrients, you know? Um, <laughs> it's just going to be fucking diminishing returns at that point, you know? Um, yeah. so, so, like... You'll ne- you'll never do it that way, but I don't know how you would do it any other way if you are in the eye of a storm where everyone has said, man, that first record was fucking perfect. When are you going to get back to doing stuff like that? You know, I feel like that would be very psychologically difficult um, to divorce yourself from. And so luckily for us, we put out a pretty rough first couple records and then you know and we just are all students of like songcraft and stuff we just sat there and we'd listen to it and be like okay this works this doesn't work and then we you know put out another record and we'd be like okay a little better this works this doesn't work i don't know why we did this again you know and then uh, you know kept adjusting and adjusting and sort of just like um like being sort of uh, very mechanical about the art of it in terms of like and studious you know like really kind of taking notes on what works what doesn't work what we like in other things that we can bring in you know i mean that's also a big thing for us is like being like okay i'm really into you know on on the new record one of like chris's coolest fucking guitar parts on the record is uh it's inspired by a solange song you know sick and and like and in that same song, I'm like kind of trying to channel MCA from the Beastie Boys, like in, in like my vocals and then like in my lyrics kind of tra- channel uh, Immortal Technique a little bit in, in like a kind of a twisted, weird way. 
you know, and it's like, and those kinds of things. And then there's other songs on there where I'm like, I want to write this. Like if Towns Van Zant was a punk, you know? Um, and I feel like that kind of stuff yields really cool results, but that's like trial and error over the course of, you know, a 20 year career where it's like, got to the point where it's like, Oh, I have my own voice and anything that filters through me is going to sound like that. So why don't I try filtering something really weird through it and see what happens? And you've tried some of those, that like weirdness on, on, on a guided tour, you know, that you, you try some different stuff on there. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. And, you know, you feel pretty fearless. It seems pretty fearless. On guided tour? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean that, you know, that was a, obviously it's our first album and we didn't know what we sounded like at that point, really. But that was the point where, like, I think we we were trying to we were trying to differentiate um, from our old band, the Broadways, for one thing, and and also to just do something that we felt like that was the first time I feel like ever that I realized the um, the real truth, which is you can make the kind of music you'd like to hear. A lot of times it's like a guitar player will write a part and it's like, oh, this is kind of a cool part. Okay, I'll do this six times. And then here's this other part. I'll do this five, four times. And then I'll do this eight times. And it becomes like sort of a, like building an engine mechanical process. And then a singer will be like, oh, I can kind of sing over that. And then it like kind of works. And then you go, okay, that's a song. But there's not like a lot of thought into like, is this the kind of song I'd like to hear? It's right. more like, can we do it? You know, it's like that Jeff Goldblum in, uh, in fucking Jurassic Park, where a lot of bands like spend so much time wondering if they could, they never take the time to wonder if they should, you, you know? And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, um, and I think when, like, one of the things that like, I think made Lawrence Arm special to me when um, when we first came together was I was like, oh my God, we can do the kinds of things that I would like there to be in punk rock. And that like really came to fruition with O Calcutta when we sat down to write that record and Chris and I were like, dude, let's make the record that we wanted to hear when we were 16, when we were listening to fucking 15 and minor threat and naked ray gun and fucking jawbreaker and bad religion. Like what was the record that was not in our catalog? Let's make it, you know, you say in that, uh, that Dan Ozzy's got that really great article about, about you um, talking about all, all the records that Lawrence arms have, have released. And you, and you talk about how on O Calcutta, you wanted to be as heavy as say, like some of the hot water music stuff. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that was, we'd, we'd come off of a Hot Water Music tour right before, like, we were writing that. And um, and those guys were just so kind and great. And, you know, they just put out Caution, which I think is their best record. And I think it was like, you know, we and we had up to that point sort of, like, wild bursts of, like, stuff that was, like, purposely non- cohesive i guess you know like mm -hmm. like my songs would be like very fast and short and then chris's songs would be longer and more like mid-tempo or whatever um for the most part not not always but um uh how other music we were just like man like and <laughs> i think with no disrespect to how water music at all intended i think we were like 
see like what they do, but we could do it like the right way, you know? And, uh, and, and again, I love caution. I love hot water music. I love those guys, but like the, our way, which would be more what we want to hear, you know? And, and like, we could make, we could make, we could make our own, like we can make our own fucking favorite album from when we were kids, you know? And, and, uh, and I think that was a thing. I mean, when we put out that record, we very much were like, you know, all the, like people like sit around and like at the time would say like, oh yeah, you know, there's these fucking bands. There's like, you know, Against Me, Dillinger 4, Hot Water Music. And then like the next tier down, it's like the Lawrence Arms. And we were like, no, that that will not do. We're going to be, <laughs> we're going to fucking put out a record that's better than any of those fucking bands records. And, you know, and it wasn't like, again, with no disrespect to those bands, it was just like, oh, you don't see what we're trying to do. We'll show you what we've been doing this whole time. And, um, and it was just like kind of part of that freedom of like figuring out what we wanted to hear and then just saying fuck it to literally everything else. The greatest story ever told has so many like literary references and it's pretty esoteric and stu- studious in that way with Oh Calcutta because it's so much more rounded as a kind of pop punk record. Did that, did it, did it concern you that you needed to kind of, I don't know, keep that up? A huge part of greatest story is that a lot of that shit's made up. Like a lot of those footnotes, I just fucking completely made up. It's like my friend's names, like Toby's credited as being like a sculptor from like the 15th century and the fucking footnotes and shit. So it was more of like a universe building thing that the idea there was like back in the day when you'd have like a lyric booklet and you'd like pour through it and it would be like every single thing created this like sort of theater of the mind. You know what I mean? Mm, mm. So we wanted to create this like fucking universe that you could just get completely lost. And it was never really an intentionality to be like perceived as like, literary fucking poindexter punk rock or anything like that it was more just like this like creative journey that we were taking you know we were we were creating like a world of fiction kind of almost more more than anything um that said there are a lot of references that are legit in those footnotes as well um and you know as people have pointed out their end notes not footnotes but whatever um the uh the thing is, that's always been, that's always been the fucking case. Like we always have done that. Like even on, um, you know, guided tour of Chicago, it's like packed with like literary references and references to to art and esoteric films and you know um, pieces of pop culture ephemera and stuff like that. And you know that continues on Ocalcutta. Ocalcutta probably has just as many references um, to that kind of thing as uh, Greatest Story does, and definitely Metropole. And uh, Skeleton Coast, both are continuing that vein. I'd say those are the two, those are the two like more intellectual records of any of them, you know. Um, but yeah. Um, I've been done in by the artwork. Do you know what I mean? Those three characters that have made me read up about them more so than lyrics in O Calcutta that I haven't read up, up much about. Right, sure. And I mean, like, you know, again, when we did, uh, when we did Greatest Story, it was like, let's do this theater of the mind thing. Like we're, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing is about a, a, sh- a show that ends in disaster, right? It's about a circus that starts and it's not going very well. And the whole place catches on fire. Right. That's like the story mm-hmm. of the record. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's like, let's draw people in and let's give them like a fucking program, you know, and let's, and let's like unlock this like fucking 
universe for them to like fucking think about. And let's do that thing that when we were kids and we'd see like the name of like a producer that was on like two of our favorite records would be like, Oh, who's Kevin army. What is that? You know? And like, what's, what's it, what do you think Sam I am sounds like, you know, shit like that, where it would just like become this like thing that would sort of take over and become its own thing. That's what we were doing there with Oh, Calcutta. We were like, let's do that fucking record. We always wanted to hear when we were kids and, and let's, leave it all in the audio. That, that's why like for the first time, like since we've ever been a band, we, you know, the liner notes were really minimal. Um, we used our real names in there. Like it was just more like, you know, let's just, let's just make a record that like really mirrors like that stuff. And, and so it, w- it was more to take you on a visceral ride than an intellectual ride. Right. But th- that's sort of our thing is to kind of change that shit up, you know, like with every record a little bit. And I think the lyrics on Skeleton Coast, some of those lyrics are like the deepest Lawrence Arms lyrics that I've heard. I mean, there's a bit where, where it's like, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me. And it's like, for me, that sums up this kind of, uh, you know, sad joker element of the band. Yeah. Um. Well, cool, man. Um, that's it. Sounds so fucking good. Thanks, man. Um, the the uh, yeah the you know the idea behind this record um, is it's loosely based on the idea of like sort of living in an outpost at the end of the world. Um, you know, kind of in wild isolation, and you know, kind of howling at the moon and finding your like small joys where you can in the midst of um, sort of desolation. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Without trying to like beat you over the head with that idea. And I feel like on the record, I I feel like it sounds like you can hear like the desolation. You can hear like the fucking self-flagellation and self-doubt, but you can also hear the, the hope in it. You know, I feel like there's Mm -hmm. a, there's a real hopeful element in the record. I don't know. I mean, like, uh, far be it from me to parse, like what our record sounds like. I've kind of too close to it to really know, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it. The other line that really fucking got me on the first couple of listens is when Chris sings like, you know, kind of crutching, leaning on a lexicon of old, like, you know, being someone who was once something. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's a, there's a lot of reflection in this. And I mean, isn't that the, ultimate truth of a the end of the world right if if you can't look forward because there is no forward to look at you can look back but that would only be very painful and it doesn't matter anyway right you know so it's like you can you could be like i used to be somebody but i don't think that there's like a I think is that are you talking about last last words? Is that the I think so the song you're talking about? Um, I think so. I listened to it in I listened to the album like kind of from start. I didn't really look at my phone. When I yeah, 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 yeah. I got you. But um, but yeah, he. Uh, I don't think I don't think it's like a. I think it's like self depreciating and like with a chuckle kind of way. Yeah, um, yeah. It's funny. It's funny because it. Do you know that I heard that line for the first time and I thought that's like me saying sick. Like I'm I shouldn't be saying sick at my age really. Mm-hmm. You know. And that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, so I, th- I think it's kind of like, 
Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, I used to be somebody. Anyway, um, right. what, what are we doing later? You know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind yeah. of shit. You know, and in recording it, good friend Sam Russo was saying how how you recorded it in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of great gear. Yeah, dude, it was guitar equipment gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh, right, you didn't mean our decks? Three stellar rigs. <laughs> yeah, we recorded this with some great hogs. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, um, we did, man. This place was called the Sonic Ranch. It's outside El Paso, and you know for. The for our friends across the pond, um, El Paso is in the middle of fucking nowhere already. It's a very isolated little city on the western border of Texas. Um, so it's um, right by Mexico and it's right by um, New Mexico, which is like Mexico but newer. Um, and uh, <laughs> and it's um. Um, and so we fly into El Paso, which itself is like a small city, like I said. And then we drive about 45 minutes out. And it was a 3,000-acre pecan ranch um, that we recorded at. And to say that there was nothing around is kind of almost an understatement. Like, it was like 20-minute drive to get to uh, a dollar store where you could buy, like, a bag of crisps. And um, a beer, and like that was, and that that was just like an isolated fucking like general store in the middle of fucking the desert, you know. And that was twenty minutes away. That's how in the middle of nowhere we were. I mean, we were surrounded by three thousand acres of pecans at the studio, but the studio itself is like it's like seven little houses, and each of those little houses contain like the seven nicest studios I've ever seen in my life. Um, and then for each house, there's another house where you stay. So like we would, we stayed in this little house. We could walk 500 feet across, um, you know, the dust um, in the midst of all these pecan trees to the little house that had the studio in it. And the way it would go is, and we'd wake up in the morning, we would drive a mile through the pecans down to the main hacienda where they would, um, the ladies, as they were known, would make us breakfast burritos. And then we'd come back. And by like 10, we'd be in the studio recording. At like 3.30, the engineer assistants would bring lunch to our little house. We'd walk across the little dusty field back to our house, eat lunch, then come back and then work till night where we'd go back to the hacienda for dinner. And then we'd come back and work, you know, if yeah. we needed to. But often, once we hit dinner, we were done. Um, and so it was like being an album camp or whatever. But the other part about it that was so cool was that they have like this insane collection of classic vintage gear. I mean, just shit the likes of which you wouldn't believe. And I don't just mean like it's like not only like do they have like nice amps, which they have seven fucking houses full of. But um, they also have, like, all these great vintage drum sets, all these fucking amazing, you know, Les Pauls from the 60s, um, all these amazing fucking, you know, jazz masters and telecasters and fucking acoustic guitars. And and then also effects pedals, keyboards, fucking vintage consoles, you know, like it, it was just like 
it was like being in a fucking, it's like being in a fantasy camp to make a record. Really? Wow. Great. It, was, it, it was so cool. Across the record, there's so many audio snippets of, uh, of like farm animals going around. And that, that brings, I mean, it's just a little small thing, but I think it, it rounds the record up. I think it makes it like helps it be yeah. a good listening experience. I, this is not the kind of thing that like, in almost any other circumstance, I would let this slide, but those are not farm animals. Those are wild animals. That's key. Yeah. They, wow. they are coyotes, uh, foxes, wolves, and whales. Um, and those are like the four animals that feature prominently in the lyrics. Right. And, um, and the idea is sort of like, those are like fucking loner scavenger animals, you know, that like howl into the nothingness, right? Like, you know, a whale song is the same as a fucking coyote howling at the moon is the same as the vixen cry of the fox is the same as the wolf howling at the moon. Right. Um, Mm. and, uh, those were sort of the things that ended up becoming these prominent um, metaphors on the record. And so that's like in the large way why the fox is on the cover of the record, you know, because, you know, foxes are the sexiest ones. So we had to put a, put a little cheesecake on the cover for you. you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like I said, it sounds so good. And, you know, I feel like there are records where you can have the best gear as, as, you, as you can, but you know, it doesn't, you know, sounds whatever. Skeleton Coast just has this incredible, like, velvety sound. I don't know. I don't want to blow too much smoke up your ass. It sounds just so good. It's, it's just my favorite bits of O'Calcutta just really kind of owned in on, you know? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's great. I, I appreciate that so much. And I was going to say, that has a lot to do with Matt. I mean, like, when he came down there, you know, so we've had the, we had this studio assistant named Mao. Um, dude, Mao is fucking a cool dude. He's from Mexico. Uh, he's been kidnapped by the cartels twice, apparently, um, just for being in a bar sitting next to the wrong guy. And they like grabbed the wrong person. Um, I, I don't know if I should be really telling his story, but this is a UK uh, fucking thing. So I, I think, I think it's probably fine. Uh, but, uh, but the motherfucker's name is Mao Castro, which is probably the most communist name that there is on the earth. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so he would have been, if we had gone down there without Matt, he would have been the engineer, right? As it happens, we had Matt. And so Mal became the assistant, which meant that he would hook up, you know, he would mic things. He would grab gear that we wanted. You know, if we were like, Oh, do you have like, um, an old, like, what about like an authentic, 1960s flange pedal. Oh yeah, I've got one of those in Studio Three, you know, and stuff like that. But Excellent. Matt Matt Allison would walk around like when he walked in, he was like, "Holy fuck, shit!" You know, and he was just like looking at things, and he's like, "Oh, this," is, you know. And I mean, I'm completely making this part up because I, I have no like technical prowess whatsoever. Um, but it would, he'd be like, "Oh, this is like a." GX 215 125 and you could tell it's 1962 because by 1963 they were using a different housing for the uh <laughs> for, for the pedal you know and and Mao who works there who's like a fucking accomplished engineer in his own right was like where the fuck did you get this guy like <laughs> it's crazy you know so 
Matt is like such a passionate nerd about that kind of shit. And I mean that in like the most like odd way. Like I'm odd by like his knowledge and just like encyclopedic knowledge of this stuff. And so he would be like, I know what you need. Like, we'd be like, ah, this sound, it's not quite right. He'd be like, let's do this. And just like fucking, you know, ask Matt to go grab something or find something that was laying around. And, and it would be like, yep. Uh, now uh, that's the exact sound we want, <laughs> you know? So, so I, I can't say enough about Matt's, um, unbelievable contribution to the way the record sounds. I mean, obviously he's the engineer, he's the producer, but also in terms of just like having his time in his own personal candy store, you know, he, he really, he really made it happen. Thanks, Brendan. It's been a great chat. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to um, end it on, you know, start kind of stay true to the, to the namesake is that, you know, we all know about like the nihilist Arby stuff and, and then flying you a puppy to say mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of thanks. I don't know. There's this kind of like ironic friendship there. Yeah. yeah. Um, did that, did that kick off like kind of a new career for you? Cause you're working with the onion now, aren't you? Well, no, the onion kind of got destroyed. I mean, it still exists, but um, the, uh, they had massive layoffs and like my team, which is, was at one point, um, I think 11 people is now two. Um, and that's like across the board, like the kind of like massive layoffs they did. And so I don't work there anymore. Um, I was laid off um, as part of that. Um, uh, but yeah, I did like, well, first I was working in, in ad advertising at a, at a large, well, the biggest ad agency in the world, FCB. Um, and I, w- I was working there. I got laid off from there. Um, and then, and then the onion picked me up and I worked there for three years and that was great. And what were you, what were you doing? What was your like expertise throughout those years at the advertising agency and then going to the onion? Uh, well, I was a copywriter at the ad agency and um, I was the only copywriter in my particular division, which was the experiential arm, which is like basically anything that's not a print ad or a TV commercial, like anything that you engage with live, you know, mm-hmm. so, so things that will never happen again, uh, <laughs> thanks to this virus, um, um, that, that, that kind of stuff was the stuff that we planned. So I was like a, just like, I was a pure creative most people on the team were logistics and, um, you know, stuff of that nature, planners and, you know, budget people and account people and logistics. And then my job was basically to come up with ideas and then like write them out in a very sort of uh, clean way. And then also I would write like tweets for brands and stuff like that. And so when I went to the onion, they have, they had a division called onion labs, which was like kind of an ad agency, but w- with the understanding that it was going to be funny and like it would kind of make fun of your brand a little bit, you know. But it would still ultimately be like you want you want you want Onion writers to write you your commercial. Here you go, you know that was what it is basically, mm-hmm. and so which was cool because it was the job at the Onion where you made money. <laughs> so that was that was good you know and um so i i wrote um you know i pitched and wrote and like wrote ads and wrote scripts and would cast the 
ads and the or cast the commercials and then was on set to do rewrites oh, wow. and assistant direct and all that kind of stuff. So it was uh, it was a great job. I I really really loved it. It was like as far as uh, having a job that's not being in a band, it was like. I'd be very surprised if I ever have a job that I enjoy that much again. Um, with, with writing ads and being on set, is that not usually something that people need a lot of experience for? Well, I did go to film school. Right. Um, and, um, and I also had worked in an ad agency, in like a straight ad agency as a copywriter for like three or four years before that. And then... Um, and then I also had the nihilist Arby's thing. So it was like, mm. I had like my fucking like humor chops proven and, you know, being able to work in an ad environment that was proven. And then also, you know, I knew my way around a film set. So it wasn't, it, it was very fortunate for, for me. I mean, it, it did, it did actually did kind of play into like, yes. Um, my resume before I started working at the first ad, ad agency was like, drank beer in a van for 25 years, you know? Uh, so, yeah. so, um, so, but this actually happened to be a job I was suited to do. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And there are some marketing skills that you're going to come, you know, you, you, you'd be marketing your band for, for that long. Yeah. But you know what, man, that is bullshit because like nobody cares. Uh, you know, you put that, <laughs> you, put, you put that shit on a resume and it's like, um, so drank beer in a van for 25 years. Got it. <laughs> you yeah, know, you yeah, know? Yeah. like you could be like, Oh no, I was in charge of all the design and you know, I negotiated all these different deals and people were like, okay, so drank beer in a van. Yeah. Got it. Like, they, like, and you know, like the, the fucking weird, sad truth is people in advertising are some of the most uncreative cowardly people on earth. So like they're going to take a chance on you. no, they're so uncreative and cowardly that they're like, mm, you know, cops are in the news. Um, Kendall Jenner's in the news. Let's have her hand a cop a Pepsi. You know, <laughs> like that's that seems like a safe bet. And it's like that's how clueless they are and uncreative. And fuck it, you know, and that was a disaster, <laughs> you know. But it's like all they needed was one like actual living, breathing person with a fucking pulse and a heart to be like, uh, no. I, I know. <laughs> I don't think you should do that. And that would have been avoided. But instead, it's like all this like fucking bullshit committee, fucking cowardly uh, oneism that goes on in there, you know, and fucking. I really appreciate you, you chatting to this. I feel like you've got so many good stories and stories for days, you know, so maybe we could do another one in the future. All right, I'd be happy to. Anytime, man. Cool. Thank you so much, Brendan. Thanks, man. Um, have a great day. Stay safe out there. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue-ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. Hold up. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.